0: All right, now, let us uh, look at Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name, bring an offering and come into his courts, worship the Lord in holy attire, tremble before him, all the earth, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established; it will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the field, excuse me, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all it contains, let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming, for He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. And the peoples in faithfulness. And then, if you'll turn now to First Chronicles chapter sixteen, starting at verse one, and they brought in the ark of God and placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And they were, excuse me, and they offered burnt offerings and the peace offerings before God. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread and a portion of meat and a raisin cake. He appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph, the chief, second to him, Zechariah, then Jael and Shemariahimoth, Jael, uh, -ah Matnimahiah, Eliab, -ah Benaiah, uh, Obed-Edom and Jiel with musical instruments, harps, lyres, and also Asaph played loud-sounding cymbals. <clears throat> ben- Benaiah and Jezeel, the priests, blew trumpets continually before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then, on that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. And then the psalm, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonderful deeds which he has done, his marvels and the judgments from his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant. Sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. For he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. He also confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. When they were only a few in number, very few and strangers in it. And they wandered about from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another people. He permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Then you have the beginning of Psalm 96 there in verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth, and it goes on down. So there is a little context uh, for us as to Psalm 96. Now, some commentators believe that this, therefore, is a psalm of David, though There is no subscript under Psalm 96 in your text that says it's a Psalm of David. Other commentators believe that maybe the chronicler uh, reached back and took Psalm 96 as a possible example of what was sung uh, as they brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. That is the context of uh, this psalm, and uh, certainly it's the way that the chronicler employed it, uh, when he when he took this psalm, there are also in First Chronicles, chapter 16, portions of Psalm one hundred and five and portions of Psalm one hundred and six. Uh, you can also find in Psalm one oh five verses one through fifteen is in that chapter in Psalm one oh six verses one and then verse forty seven and forty eight. But let's for our sake just imagine that this psalm was composed uh, for the coming of the ark into Jerusalem. Uh, This certainly would be a fitting psalm, and this psalm uh, speaks about uh, several things. I'm going to give you five things tonight. I usually try to keep it simple, three, but uh, tonight I'm going to give you five, and I hope that's not too many. But first of all, I want to talk about what is a new song, what does it mean to sing a new song. Number two, uh, the exhortation to sing, and we've talked about that a little bit in some of these other psalms that we've been studying, so I won't spend too much time there. And then number three, I want to consider with you the anticipation of gospel success, I think is found in this song. anticipation of gospel success. And then number four, our God is great and holy, the holiness of God, the greatness of God. Another theme in this psalm. And then the last one, number five, our God is a judge of all the earth. Our God is a judge. So, uh, what is a new song the command to sing gospel success, the holiness of God and his uh, reign as judge all right those five things now this psalm begins with uh, three uh, actually it begins really with like six exhortations three of which are to sing but in the first line in verse one it says to sing a new song and uh, people wonder what that means to sing a new song. I think the psalmist here, when he uses that term, he's talking about that we are to praise God for a new work of God that he has done. To sing a new song unto the Lord is to praise him for a new redemptive event. And in this case, we can see how this psalm would then tie in with 1 Chronicles chapter 16 because what was the new event that we find in that chapter? It was the coming of the ark into Jerusalem. Now, boys and girls, why would that be such a great event? Well, the reason that that's such a wonderful event is because the Ark of the Covenant, as they carried that Ark on the poles, and remember, they got spanked pretty badly when they didn't. They put it on the ox cart at first, and you remember that Uzzah uh, touched the Ark, and God struck As a down for touching, or well, it doesn't even say he touched it. He was reaching out to touch it to stabilize it. I don't even know that God let him touch it, and God struck him down. And that we'll talk about that in a minute when we talk about the holiness of God. But anyway, the 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 reason that this is so important, boys and girls, is because this is the symbol of God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant was was the footstool to the throne of God. It it was a copy of something of a reality in heaven. And that is, remember, God told Moses, be careful what you make here because I'm going to give you a copy. It's going to be a copy of something that portrays a reality in in heaven above. And that is that God is on his throne in heaven above, and there are angelic creatures on either side of the Lord that cover themselves, and they proclaim the holiness of God day and night. Unceasingly, You can look at Isaiah chapter 6 and you can see this. Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord and he is seated on his throne. The train fills the whole room, the whole room of the temple. And there the holiness of God is, is proclaimed. So the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the nearness of God to his people. Now this is typology. It means that this was to teach the people of God. It was to train the people of God to a biblical truth, and that is that God would always be near to his people. Now, he would not always be near to his people in that golden box by way of, of, the, of the ark, okay? But he was teaching the people at, at the time that Christ one day would come into their midst and Christ would dwell among his people as a man, that Christ would come into their midst. That the word would become flesh, to put it in the language of John in his opening prologue in the gospel. So this is very significant because the Ark of the Covenant is, boys and girls, a type of Christ. It's a type of Jesus in the Old Testament. So it's very, very significant that you understand why there would be such celebration among the people of God when, when Christ would come into our midst, when, when God would come into the midst of his people. It was pointing ahead so one day Jesus would come and he would fulfill all that Old Testament typology. You wouldn't need an ark anymore. Remember one of, the, uh, one of the prophets said that there would come a day when the people of God wouldn't care where the ark is, okay? Whether it's in the warehouse in Washington, D.C., uh, as the movie says, or whether it's just gone, where, wherever it is, the people of God, we don't care. Uh, you know, there, there, sometimes theologians like to you know, ask the question, You know, could you touch the ark today if it was, you know, if it was found? Uh, I think the answer is yes, uh, because there is no holy furniture anymore. And, And because something better than the ark has come, Jesus has come. And Christ has come into our midst. And now that he's finished his earthly ministry and he's gone to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit into our midst. And we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So God has come even nearer to his people. So this is highly significant. Anyway, going back to the context in 1 Chronicles 16, what we find here is David and the people of God celebrating before the Lord with all their might that God was coming into the city of David. God was coming into Jerusalem. And they were worshiping God. And they were praising God. And they were thanking God for drawing near. This this people was unique in all the nations of the earth. All the other nations... Served idols. Look at verse 5. For all the gods of, of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Everybody else in the world, including your relatives and mine, were worshipping leprechauns. Unless ethnically you're Jewish, your relatives and my relatives were worshipping leprechauns and totem poles and trees and, and all kinds of things like that. And, and had, they were ignorant. They were in blindness, darkness foolish speculations, uh, suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness. And and the truth of God was found in Jerusalem back in those days, 3,000 years ago. But now, even in this psalm, what do we see, though? We see the anticipation that the gospel will go to the nations. So this was a new work. A new song was to be sung because this was a new redemptive event. That the Ark of the Covenant was now in the city of David. God was near to David. God had promised that he would be with David. God had promised that he would build up David's throne. God had promised that one day somebody would sit on David's throne and would reign and rule forever. And of course, that is Jesus Christ. We see it in Matthew. We see it in Luke. In the genealogies, Jesus is the son of David. So this was a new song reflecting a new redemptive work in God. Now, let me say this. If this psalm sings about this new redemptive work, I would argue how much more do we have to sing about the work of Christ on our behalf. I would also say that as you sing the psalms, you should always sing the psalms from a Christological perspective. That as you have your psalter in hand and you're singing unto the Lord, and we trust with your heart as well as with your mouth, that as I sing the psalm, what should I be thinking about? What should I think of when I see these words? Well, we think about Christ, that these psalms, they speak of Christ. And we should always interpret these things. If, if we sing to the Lord a new song, well, we know that what this context might be, but we know that this is not the way that we necessarily should sing this psalm. I mean, we're not singing a new psalm, a new song because the ark has been brought near, but we're singing a new song because Christ has been Brought near to us. So when we sing these songs, they they can be, even if they're old songs, I guess is my point, they are sung as a new song because Jesus has fulfilled the significance of this song. All right. Number two. uh, Three times in the opening verses here, we find the exhortation to sing. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. So three times we are exhorted in a call to worship, if you will, to sing, sing, sing. Sing to the Lord. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because we've talked about this before, but I do want to just mention by way of encouragement to you that I want you to sing. I hope you're singing to the Lord, even if it is but a joyful noise. Sing to the Lord, okay? Uh, Work on that as a family. Work on singing as, as a family. Work on singing uh, even if you're a household of one like me, uh, to sing unto the Lord. It's a great blessing, not only for you, but it, it's a blessing uh, for the Lord, that we bless the Lord when we, when we lift up his name in, in song to him. And uh, I've told you this before, but I'll repeat it. There are, there, uh, the commandment to sing is numerically found more times in the Bible than any other commandment. Uh, that doesn't mean, boys and girls, it's the most important commandment. But just it's, it is interesting to see that the Lord uh, does give us this this commandment to sing more often than any other commandment in the Bible. And so if you're not singing, you know, I told you once, it's important, told you twice, more important to tell you three times in a single psalm. It's really important. Sing unto the Lord. Uh You might ask yourself, why aren't you singing, you know? Um, And I want tonight, I don't want to just get to your vocal cords. I want to get to your heart on this issue because that is what's really important. Um, Because, you know, I know the excuses for some. They'll say, oh, I can't sing. Well, you know, you may not be the most gifted singer, but, you know, it's not a command here just for the gifted here to sing. But this is something that all of us, I mean, um, the Lord has done a great work for us in Jesus Christ and in our hearts. And, you know, and, and this ought to be reflected uh, in our singing. Uh, singing is a reflection of a spiritual reality. All right, I want to keep moving though. Number three, we see also in this psalm an in, in, in anticipation of gospel success in anticipation of gospel success. Now think about this with me. We are talking about the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem in First Chronicles chapter 16. And the psalm that is either composed for this event or is borrowed for this event is being sung unto the Lord. Now what is significant about that in terms of the anticipation of gospel success? Here's what I think. I think it's incredible when you think about the Lord coming to the city of David For the first time the people of God Celebrating with all their might And they recognize in the midst of it That this what is happening Is not just for themselves But what God is doing by blessing The city of Zion is for all the earth That the the Jews should have understood That the gospel Of Christ Was going to be for all the nations of the earth Even back 3000 years ago That it was always the plan of God To bring Himself near to all the families of the earth. Look with me at several verses. First of all, look at verse 3. He says, Tell of His glory among the nations. okay, Among the Gentiles. Among the nations. okay, Among the goyim. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord. O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Look at verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Look at verse 11. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. That is the the idea of the whole creation. Uh, Again, verse 13b. Before the Lord he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. So we have several references in this psalm that have a universal scope to the nations. They have a universal scope of the gospel going out and spreading to all the families of the earth, to all the nations of the earth. And so there is great anticipation here. Now, I think that's highly significant, especially when you consider that the Ark of the Covenant was coming into Zion. They, they were to recognize that this, this work of God that he is doing in our midst is not just for ourselves. And we've got to remember that. When God draws near to this church, it's not just for ourselves, but it is for all the nations. We are gathering here tonight in the name of Jesus Christ, praying that the fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ would be with us tonight. But it's not just for ourselves. But we're praying that God would draw near to us, that we would worship Him, and that He would make Himself known among the nations. you know uh, one of the uh though I didn't agree with every single thing in the book there was a book put out by Jack Miller called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church and I liked that title and the idea was that the gospel is not just for ourselves but that the gospel is for the nations and churches sometimes can forget that and become ingrown and to think well this this is for us but it is for us but it is something that is to be shared through missions and evangelism, through prayer, through giving uh, of ourselves, through our tithes and offerings, and of course we see this both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, I've probably worn out some of these verses with you in in prayer as we pray the promises of God. The kingdom of God is like leaven. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You know, idea that it spreads or it grows into the largest tree. The kingdom of God is like. Zion, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 2, it's the mountain that becomes the chief mountain in the earth and all the nations come streaming unto it. It's like the little rock that was not cut by human hands and it comes and it strikes the feet of clay in the book of Daniel and then this rock just magically, miraculously grows to become a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And that rock, of course, is Jesus Christ. But all these pictures of, of the kingdom growing, the kingdom spreading... The kingdom becoming a chief mountain in the earth to which everybody looks unto. Uh, in the Psalms, all nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship thee. Uh, you can look at in uh, John's revelation. He sees the future. And he sees uh, all the redeemed, all the justified standing in white before the throne of God. And he says they're from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So what an encouragement! You know, um, you know. I know a lot of Christians are. I'm reading articles and blogs and stuff, and Christians are worried about Islam, and uh, and there there are things to be concerned about. Um, and we certainly want to be uh, wise and shrewd how to minister uh, to Islam. Um, Islam is a is a powerful religion in one sense that it uh, it encompasses an entire worldview, much like Christianity. Uh, in that sense it 's different than uh, other idols that uh, Christian missionaries deal with out there but uh, but nevertheless, uh, we need to remember the promises of God and, and look to the Lord and not look to you know the situation, look to the Lord, not to the wind and the waves, but to recognize that our God is the living God, and all the other Gods are, are but idols. Verse 5a, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. And that includes Islam. Islam, they worship an idol. They they, they worship a, a more sophisticated idol. You can't see it. They didn't make it with human hands. And so in that sense, it, it's a little bit more sophisticated. It's it's an idol that has been influenced. Christianity has had an influence on Islam. You do realize that, right? And that's why it's probably a bit more sophisticated than other religions, because it came after Christianity, it borrowed from Christianity, it borrowed ideas of monotheism from Christianity, it borrowed uh, ideas of having a holy book uh, as well, things like that. But nevertheless, it's, it's still a work of Muhammad's imagination. It's, it's still an idol. It's still nothing. They worship a God who is not there. Uh, they don't know the true and living God. The true and living God is triune. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they don't recognize that. Uh, so they, they are fundamentally worshiping another God entirely. And, and I think we need to look at the anticipation of gospel success in this psalm, or in the prophets, or in the kingdom parables of Jesus, or in the apocalypse of, of Revelation by John, and, and say, you know, there's a lot of reason for encouragement. You know, for Christians, there's a lot of reason to to pray with faith, to pray optimistically that the gospel is going to have success in the Middle East. The gospel is going to have success in Yemen, in, you know, Libya, in wherever, Morocco, all the way to Indonesia. That throughout the, what we would call the Islamic nations, the gospel is going to leaven there. And, and Jesus Christ is going to spread his name, his fame in those nations. And I, I, I want you to think about that as you pray. To, to, you know, I know it, it may seem today fanciful for us to pray that Jesus would raise up the church in, in Mecca, and in Medina, in Saudi Arabia. But it, it really is not fanciful if you, if you take the Bible seriously, that the Bible says, I will build my church. And the, and the gates of hell will not overcome it, and, and, and that we take that. Now, it, it does seem incredible, uh, from our perspective, that we could think that there would be a, a, a large significant presence of, of Christians one day in Saudi Arabia, uh, particularly given what, how that nation stands against Christianity, uh, even uses the full force of the law and government to oppose it, uh, to oppose um, proselytization. I mean, but nevertheless, this is where we let God be true and all men liars. Let, let, let God worry about how he's going to do it. But he's going to do it. And we should pray for it. We should work for it. We should give for it. Because it is going to happen. It is going to happen. There are going to be people from Saudi Arabia there. And there are going to be, there are going to be people without number. Remember that part of the promise of Revelation 7. That I saw a great multitude without number. There are going to be a lot of people. From formerly Muslim countries standing before the throne. There are going to be a lot of ex-Muslims or descendants of people who are Muslims today that, that are going to be justified in the righteousness of Jesus Christ before that great white throne. So I want you to have that anticipation of gospel success if you don't have it. Whether you're on-mill or post-mill, I don't care. But either way, I want you to have that that. Anticipation of gospel success. If you're something other than our post-mill, you're outside the standards, but uh, in my opinion. All right. Um, Number four, our God is a great and holy God. Our God is a great and holy God is another theme that we see here, the greatness of God. Now, the anticipation we can have of gospel success comes from the very nature and being of God himself. Uh, I'm astounded when you think about the creation and just the billions of stars and the galaxies, I don't know if you all ever spend any time uh, reading about this, but uh, when you read about it, it's very difficult for me. I, I'm not a very imaginative person by nature, and so I, I, I personally have difficulty understanding how this all works and where it is. And like, you know, if here's the Earth. Are there things below and things above? I don't know. But apparently, you know, they're, they, what they, the scientists tell you is they're just – you know galaxies and galaxies and galaxies out there and and in each of these things there's billions of stars in all of them uh, to the point where some have wondered is there are there more stars than sand you know at the beaches when you add up all the beaches I don't know, but these things are mind blowing uh, when you think about them and and yet uh we can't we don't even know the edge of creation we don't know where it is we you know we always can speculate. Nobody has seen it. But all we know is that God, the Bible tells us, God made it uh, out of his power, out of his own word. He, he made the heavens and the earth. And, and you add all these billions of stars that are out there, and the Bible says that he knows them all. He knows them all intimately acquainted with all the stars that he's made. He's intimately aware uh, of, of all of them, has them by name. And it says, again, something about the greatness of God, an infinite God, an eternal God, a God of tremendous power. Now, in verse 4, this God is to be feared, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. He is to be reverenced. He is to be worshipped. Verse 5 tells us that he is the creator, Uh, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So there we see that uh, this did not happen by chance. Uh, the world in which we live in is not a world of random chance. Uh, chance is nothing. But uh, they, everything came into being from God. And then num- verse 6 we see in verse 7 and verse 9, his attributes, several attributes are mentioned. His splendor is mentioned uh, his majesty, his strength, his beauty. you ever think about the beauty of the Lord? We're going to talk a little bit about that uh, coming up in either a Wednesday night or a Sunday night here pretty soon. I'm going to hopefully speak to you on Samuel Rutherford and his letters and how Rutherford draws from the Song of Solomon so much uh, to capture the beauty of the Lord. Uh, the glory, verse seven, ascribed to the Lord, O families of the people ascribed to the Lord, glory. And strength. And then verse 9, worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him, all the earth. God is infinitely holy. Then I got one more, number 5. In verses 10 through 13, our God is the judge of all the earth. He's the judge. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established, it will not be moved. And then see there in 10C, He will judge the peoples with equity. So this God who's created, this God who is glorious, who's holy, who's righteous, who's altogether good, who's omniscient, he is also the judge. He'll bring every thought uh, before him and he will render a perfectly equitable judgment for every person who's ever lived. Now, if you want to stand in the day of judgment. There is only one way that you and I can stand, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Because God is omniscient, He knows every single sin. A God who knows the billions of stars out there, boys and girls, knows every intimate detail of your life. Every sin Spoken, thought, done, left undone. He is aware. And because we saw in verse 9, he is holy, he is righteous, he is good. He cannot allow sin to go unmet with his justice. And so he sends Jesus into the world in fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant. And Jesus comes near to us And lives among us. And dies for us. So that all those sins. That God knows all so well. Can be placed on Jesus' shoulders. As he's hanging on that cross. And he takes all those past, present, future sins of ours. And he lays them on Jesus. And Jesus wears them. And Jesus owns them. Like they were his personal sins. And he says, I'll take them. I'll wear them. I'll take the punishment for those sins. I'll suffer the consequence of your sins. And because he does that, we have forgiveness. Those sins are now pardoned. God is still just because he's dealt with the sin, but he is also the justifier. He takes sinners and he declares you to be righteous because Jesus not only takes your sins and wears them, but he gives you his righteousness. And so, how do I stand? We, we stand in Christ. That's the only way to stand, congregation, if you're visiting here tonight. That's the only way you can stand before a perfectly righteous and holy God is through faith in Jesus Christ. We saw that in Luke 15 tonight, didn't we? As we read, it, it wasn't, we often think that one of the brothers, you know, was, was the great sinner and, and the other one wasn't. But the, the problem is, is that. This story is about two brothers, and both brothers have a wrong view of of their relationship with God the Father. Both of them, if you look at both of their answers, they both thought that they had a reason to be standing there on the basis of works. One says, make me as a hired servant. He comes back. Make me as like one of the slaves. And the other one had a slave mentality as well. He said, I've been slaving for you. I've been working for you all these years, and I've never gotten a party thrown on my behalf. You see, both of them had a misunderstanding of the gospel. And so if anybody here tonight, maybe you're under that same kind of thinking. You think, you know, I'm standing before God on the basis I've been, I've been faithful. I've been coming to church, doing the Sunday school thing. I'm here on Wednesday nights, whatever it might be. Lord, I, I, I've been doing all the things I'm supposed to do. Listen, that's not the way you want to look at how you stand before God. You want to stand before God saying, Lord, I'm not worthy, true, to be your son. The prodigal got that much right. But he didn't recognize the other part, and that is the grace. But, Lord, you are gracious, and you forgive sin. And if you, you said, Lord, if I'll but only confess my sin, you're faithful, you're righteous to forgive me uh, of my sins. And so, Lord, I come asking for forgiveness. I come asking for your mercy. I come asking that you would impute to me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I trust you, Lord Jesus. I believe on you. And I ask that you would receive me here. So that is, when God judges the earth, uh, he's going to separate uh, before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. And and God is going to come one day and judge the earth. Now, I don't think it's going to be next Saturday as... Uh, some are, are saying, okay, in case, you know, you've heard, some people are predicting the end of the world next Saturday. Uh, it could be. Now, I think that personally the gospel has further to go in the world uh, before Jesus returns, but nevertheless, he is coming. They are right about that much. He is coming. I just don't think any of us knows. I mean, if the Son of Man himself doesn't know, I mean, what makes anybody else think they could know? All right? But anyway, He is coming to judge. And when He judges, it will be a separation. The righteous and the wicked. And though we're all wicked by nature, we're righteous only because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's how we're going to be judged in that final day. He will look at you and He'll see Christ. He'll see Christ's righteousness. And therefore, there's no condemnation. He looks at you and all your sins are already forgiven. He looks at your record and it's clean because Jesus has already paid for your sins. And he sees the things that you have done in Christ, for Christ, and he rewards you. He compensates you and blesses you far beyond what those works may have merited you. All right, let's, let's close together.